fantastic. Um, I, I'm going to do just um, three observations um, about the, the legacy of forced removals in Cape Town particularly, uh, and then maybe just conclude with one application uh, as I look over the last 300 years in nine minutes. Okay, so um, the first observation is that Christianity and forced removals are inseparable. Um, the, the way that things happened over here was, was very violent. The word forced is, a, is an important word. When my own grandmother was removed from Mowbray um, over here in Cape Town, it was a very violent um, um, thing that happened to our family. Um, and my grandmother loves the Lord Jesus. She's one of those kind of mars that where you phone and then she's going to quote verses to you. Even if you don't ask, she's going to be like, I'm in the Lord of the land of the living and, you know, you must serve the Lord, Ryan. And she's, she loved the Lord. And, 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 and even though she was so involved in her church community and she loved Jesus, she never spoke about this, this violent thing that happened to them. Uh, and the church that they were in never, ever dealt with it. And so... Um, I think the reason for this is because there's this connection between this violent forced removal that happened in Cape Town and, and, and churches. Uh, the story starts like this, 1488, Bartholomew Dias arrives, uh, he's Portuguese, and he, on arrival in the Cape, ends up fighting with the Khoikhoi. They were the people who inhabited the Cape at the time. And uh, immediately after this big skirmish that happens, he plants a cross in the Cape. <coughs> immediately this connection between violence and Christianity is established. Then 1497, Vasco da Gama lands at St. Helena Bay, and another violent clash erupts. Uh, and then in 1501, uh, they, they build a little chapel in Mossel Bay. And one historian says at this point, Christianity was to feature in every stage of the ensuing European colonization process. Uh, and, and that's really how the story continues. We see Jan van Riemert arriving in 1652. He does two things immediately. Um, he establishes a reformed um, doctrine uh, within, the, within the Cape, and he has a big prayer meeting. And at the prayer meeting, he, he prays that true reformed Christian doctrine be spread at the first, um, at, so that the, the true reformed Christian doctrine, doctrine can, um, can, can penetrate the wild and insolent people who live in the Cape. Um, and then the next thing that he does is he writes to the Herian, the, the person in charge of the VOC company, to ask for slaves. Uh, so he dislocates other people. Um, and you see this connection between violence and, and Christianity. Um, and this is how the story continues. 1806, the British occupy the Cape. There's about 9,000 slaves at this point. Um, and slavery, which was, was a horrific thing, was also a very Christian thing. On arrival, people would come here and get Christian names, like Abrahams and Moses and... Uh, some people get tithed to the church. Slave boys get tithed to the church. and So it was a very Christian act. Um, but it just reinforces the violence that got normalized during the birth of Christianity in Cape Town. Uh, so much so that if you were a, a son, you could have a slave uh, owner as a father uh, and a mother who was a slave and go to church on Sunday with your slave owner father who might be a deacon um, but he's also your slave owner. So, so this is the culture that, that Christianity is birthed in, in Cape Town. Um, and we see towards the close, uh, halfway through the 19th century, slavery ends. But then in the 20th century, we have um, reformed missionaries, uh, missionaries, 
who then start to think through and plan and architect um, apartheid, which comes from the 1930s by Enochiocaric missionaries. And then the first person that institutes um, apartheid is a, is a Christian, uh, actually a minister from the Enochiocaric, T.F. Milan, who becomes a politician, and then he institutes apartheid. So, so there's this link between um, forced removal, which are very violent, and, and Christianity. And I think this creates a, a culture in, in our churches, particularly in evangelical Protestant churches, where, where violence towards people of color is somewhat normalized. It's somewhat normalized. And so someone asked the question around um, how do we, how do we, um, you know, how do we protest or how do we uh, uh, seek for land um, rest, restitution? Um, and the truth is that in most churches, if, if you want to protest, um, it's kind of delegitimized. Uh, you, you kind of, you, you're kind of not sure if you're allowed to do that, if that's something that, that is godly, um, because there's, a, there's an underlying culture that I don't think has changed very much where violence towards people of color has become the abnormal normal. And, um, and it's somewhat traumatic for people of color who are part of the evangelical movement. So, so that's the first observation. The second observation is that places linked to race. Places always linked to race. Um, so when my, my granny got moved from Mowbray, and my family got moved to Mowbray, they, they got moved because they were so-called colored people. That was the reason. So so. so so violence happened because people were black or because of their race. That was the bigger game of food. There, there, there was something much bigger. And I think one of the questions was around, um, is land restitution enough? Because there seems to be a bigger thing that's, that's happening. Um, and, and that is the case. There is something bigger, and it's linked to racism. Um, when, when people arrived, the, the Portuguese, the British, the... The, the Dutch um, and, and the Afrikaners, they, not, they didn't only take land, they also defined people. They also came with a very paternalistic um, um, a, a project of defining. So you, you're black and, and you're not so black and you're colored and, and you're this and you're hot not. And so, so this, this was, a, was, a, was a massive system that was set in place which was bigger than just taking land. Uh, there, were, there were barter and trade regulations set up between, the, between uh, British and, and Koi Koi, for example, which were, which were unjust and unfair and always saw the, 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 the British as, as the ones who, um, who ended up with more. And today we have the legacy with a Gini coefficient, which has moved um, actually in a post-apartheid society, which has increased, which... Some people would say, use the word whiteness as a system that oppresses black people and, and privileges white people. Some people will talk about systemic uh, racism. Whatever word you want to use for, that, for, for the system that we're in, not only white people participate in the system. So that's the first thing that we need to see. Post-apartheid, the Gini coefficient has moved from 0.64 inequality coefficient to 0.7. So things are actually uh, getting worse. There are people participating in a system that is oppressing people of color, and it's not only white people. And, um, and, and, we, and we see that this, this continual uh, link between place and race active today. Um, one um, historian puts it this way, the former reserve areas score the lowest on all dimensions of the multiple deprivation indexes. And we've heard first-hand stories today of what that's like including access to public services, education, clean water, sanitation, adequate housing, food security, and health. South Africa has the highest rates of unemployment, 
infant mortality, illiteracy, as well as the lowest levels of asset ownership and income are also concentrated in ex-Bantistans and former reserve areas. And then the, the chapter concludes with this uh, kind of um, uh, uh, statement from a land perspective, from a land perspective redistribution of land must be carried out within a broader approach to structural reform and sustainable development that changes the current inequitability and exclusive patterns of accumulation. So we, we can't just return land. That, that's the, the essential point, I think, that I'm making, <coughs> is that there's a bigger system uh, of whiteness that we need to figure out, structural racism that we need to figure out, and we need to separate between church and some of these systems. Now, when we look back, we ask the question, how did Christians respond? How did the true Christians, I think there were many people who weren't Christians, even though they claimed to be Christians, but how did the true, how did the good people respond? Um, and then this leads to a third observation, that structural racism or whiteness has been interwoven into Christianity. Uh, Christians responded primarily in three ways, ambiguously. Uh, so before change, before transformation, but not that much. It's like ambiguous um, one historian, Richard Alfick, puts it this way, most missionaries in South Africa did not straightforwardly advocate on extension of race, um, sorry, just run out of time, um, of, of racial e equality from the spiritual to the social realm. Black Christians, the country, tended vigorously to assert that equality in the eyes of God should evolve into social and political equality. The white missionaries' relationship to the doctrine they had introduced was immensely complex, and he's talking about the gospel, and intricate uh, interplay of advocacy and then subversion and even downright hostility, like a Katy Perry song, they're hot and they're cold, they're up and they're down, yes and they're no, right, that's what's, what's going on. Then there was another, 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 yeah, you, you get it. Then there was accommodationists, um, and so if you read any literature on history in South Africa and Cape Town in particular, you'll get accommodationist language, um, where, where you, you had missionaries who would, would try to accommodate the government, try to accommodate the powers that be, whether it was a colonial government, apartheid government, um, but it was always at the, at the, at the expense of, of people of color. And so real change never really happens because they're always trying to um, stop people from going to war or stop people from uh, protesting or stop people from doing things that are going to upset the government. Um, and then you had the gradualist. Um, and, and even the best of the missionaries would fall into this category. They, the, Bishop Colenso, uh, perhaps as an example, was the best of missionaries in Natal wouldn't let black people preach, for example, because he felt that they weren't ready and they would become ready maybe in a few generations. Um, and so when you, when you fast forward a couple of years, when we look at today, uh, or last year perhaps, the Fees Must Fall campaign, um, I think some of, the, some of the things that got expressed during that time by, by Christians and by leaders was uh, students need to be patient. They, need, they can't just expect that everything changes immediately. You can't get free education immediately. Things take time to change, or there were prayers for peace but not for justice. Um, there was this accommodationist kind of gradualist um, theology that got expressed. And so when Marikana happened, we, we, we wondered where was the church in there, where was the evangelical church in there. When Isidim Neme happened and 140 uh, odd people, 43 disabled people died, uh, we kind of asked the question, where was the evangelical church in that? When uh, Salt River or Woodstock gets gentrified, uh, we, we kind of, which is kind of another round of forced removals. We, we kind of wonder, where is the evangelical voice? And, and has 
um, this gradualist, accommodationist ambiguity um, kind of become part of our theology of justice. And then lastly, the, the, the kind of application, and I'll just say one thing about it. Because colonization happened through the church, the decolonial project has to happen in the church Amen. if we're going to proceed. We need the church. The church is central to, to, to transformation in society. It's a salt and light. It's a healing balm to the nation. But we, but we, need, we need these conversations to be happening uh, so that we can have a transformed church that is an example. And it is possible we can have a transformed church. And I think our nation is ready for that. And just to end off with a book I think that someone's going to talk about later on, Charlene Swartz, I saw another country there, which has got um, very practical steps as to how churches can make restitution, how people can get into groups and start these conversations and actually uh, continue the decolonial project. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks.